Now please turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Zephaniah, chapter 1. Last week we considered verses 1 through 6. Tonight we'll begin at verse 7 and go to the end of the chapter. Zephaniah 1, 7 through 18. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And that's the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, please instruct us from your word tonight. Uh, Teach us the things you desire for us to learn from the Holy Scriptures, and may Christ be magnified, for we pray in his name. Amen. Verse 15 seems to be the basis for a a medieval hymn. I've forgotten the name of the, the author to whom the hymn was attributed. But then there was a, uh, a chant tune that became associated with that hymn. I titled the sermon The Day of Wrath because that's the title of the hymn, The Day of Wrath, 
or in Latin, dies irae. And if you've got any musical training, you might be familiar with that title, with that hymn even. It's the, uh, the, the joy of orchestral tuba players, and it's the bane of orchestral violinists. Dies irae. Actually, many composers, especially in the Romantic era, made use of that tune, that melody, and incorporated it into various works, uh, into various musical compositions. But this, this hymn that was sort of the, the catalyst for all of that, for uh, some works of Rachmaninoff and for Symphony Fantastique by Hector Berlioz, this hymn, the Dies Irae, uh, speaks of the day of the Lord and describes it as Zephaniah does, as a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. And all of that was in stark contrast to the concept of the Jews in Zephaniah's day and in the days of Amos. And some time ago when we were looking at the prophecy of Amos, Amos makes reference to the day of the Lord and he rebukes the people in terms of the day of the Lord because they seem to think that the day of the Lord to which they were very much looking forward, was going to be a day of prosperity and a day of blessing, a day of joy and victory and liberation for them as the covenant people of God. And Amos said, no, not at all. In fact, in Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, the prophet says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And that's what both Amos and Zephaniah are telling the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they can expect with the day of the Lord. Well, when we began Zephaniah last week, verses 2 through 6 began with the theme of global judgment and then sort of zoomed in on the people of Judah. And what we have now, beginning in verse 7 and going to the end of this chapter, is sort of the reverse. It's a mirror image in a way. So verses 7 through 13 uh, focus on Jerusalem and Judah and then the theme of judgment expands to include the whole earth. And what we find in these verses is that the day of God's wrath is coming against His rebellious people and against all the inhabitants of the earth. That's the theme of these verses we're looking at tonight. The day of God's wrath is coming against His rebellious people and against all the inhabitants of the earth. And so we just have two points tonight, and it's those two things. Judgment against Judah, judgment against the nations. And I call this first point, beginning with the house of God, because it reminded me a lot of those familiar words of Peter in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 17, where he makes reference to the fact that, that it's time for judgment to begin with the, house, the household of God. 
And so that gives us this general impression that that's where it'll start. The rest of the nations will get theirs, but God's going to begin in His own house. And that's our first point. That's what we have in verses 7 through 13. And so as the day of the Lord is introduced, it begins at Jerusalem. And we know that very clearly by the time we get to verse 12, because Jerusalem is specifically mentioned. But backing up a couple of verses to verse 10, there are some Jerusalem-specific identifiers, some uh, locations and landmarks mentioned there. It speaks of the fish gate, for example. Now, the fish gate was one of the major gates in the ancient city of Jerusalem, and it was the uh, most easily accessible. It was on the north side of the city, and it was the only gate that you could approach uh, that didn't involve some kind of very steep ascent. So that was the most popular gate for entry and exit for merchants and so forth. Also, it mentions the second quarter or the the new quarter, it could be translated, um, which was also in the northern section of the city of Jerusalem. It speaks of cry being heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and then a crash from the hills. We don't know exactly what the mortar was. It might be a name for their marketplace, the major marketplace in Jerusalem. But the point is, this is all taking place in Jerusalem, the holy city. And it will be a time of anguish. And these sounds and so forth that are described in verses 10 through 12 are, are sounds that we would associate with an invasion, with some kind of catastrophe. It's the day of the Lord, and and the passage tells us the day of the Lord is near. We see that in verse 7. We'll see it again in verse 14. But this urgency is presented to us. When he says it's not far off, it's not going to be sometime in the distant future. The day of the Lord is coming, and it's near. And the text says, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and He has consecrated His guests. Now, A sacrifice implies bloodshed. Normally of of an animal sacrifice. But if there's a sacrifice, there's going to be a slaughter. And it makes reference to consecrated guests. And that might be guests who are coming to participate in the sacrifice. But one commentator in particular thought, This might be some sort of macabre play on words where it turns out the guests are the sacrifice. And we're told here that as it pertains to this day of the Lord, this judgment that is coming, no one is exempt. So he specifies in the text, he'll punish the officials. People become very frustrated, very disheartened when it seems that there are some people that are just above the law and God is saying, these people are not above the law. They will not escape. I will punish the officials. I will punish the king's sons. They're not going to get off the hook. There's no hiding from God's wrath. Did you notice what God said He was going to do? He said He's going to search Jerusalem, verse 12, he's going to search Jerusalem with lamps. He's going to search every nook and cranny. Wherever he finds anybody trying to hide from his wrath, he'll ferret them out. There's no escaping. There's no use hiding. And what is God's contention? These are 
the covenant people. This is the holy city, the place where his name was to dwell and did dwell. What is the indictment? Well, we see some rather curious things here. He mentions that he's going to punish the officials and king's sons and, in verse 8, all those who array themselves in foreign attire. I imagine there's got to be at least somebody here tonight who's wearing something that's made in a foreign country. Is that an issue? Is that a sin? Well, that's not really the point. When he condemns the people for wearing foreign attire, in that context, in that age, it was a reference to, to opulence. It was a reference to this chronic yearning that the Israelites had had from the very beginning to be like the other nations. God had called them to be a peculiar people. He'd called them to be different. He'd called them to represent Him to the nations. What did the Israelites want? They just wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to have a king like the other nations. They wanted to dress like the other nations. They wanted to worship like the other nations, which is the bigger problem. So this you know, wanting to wear the clothing of, of foreign nations was really just symptomatic of a larger problem that they were so enamored with foreign values, not just foreign clothing, foreign religions, and the way those people worship their gods. They wanted to worship the same way. That might be what's being referred to when it speaks of uh, him punishing those who leap over the threshold. It's difficult to know for certain uh, what that means or what the issue there is, but just by comparing Scripture to Scripture, my suspicion is that it's a reference to superstitious rituals borrowed from other religions. Particularly, you remember when, uh, when the Philistines captured the ark and they carried it away and they put it in the house of Dagon, their god. And then the next day when the priests of Dagon came in, Dagon had fallen down before the ark of Yahweh. And so, as they have to do with an idol, the Philistines took their god and set him back up. And then the next day they came back and Dagon had fallen down again and his hands had fallen off. I forget what else. But anyway, the point is, Dagon had fallen down on the threshold of his own temple. And so, therefore, the Philistines developed this new religious observance where they did not tread on the threshold of Dagon. So when they entered the temple, they guess they had to step over it or jump over it. And that might be what's at work here. These, these people of Judah knew what the Philistines do in their temple. Maybe they were doing the same thing in the temple of the Almighty God. People of Judah loved imported clothing and they loved imported worship styles. Of course, the text also condemns something that's uh, much more clearly immoral, uh, gain through violence and fraud, filling their master's house with such things. And then it goes on to mention as God is on his search throughout the city like like a police officer, Searching Jerusalem and punishing the men who are complacent. That word complacent, the Hebrew word, uh, sometimes is used to describe wine that has been congealed after having sit too long or milk that's curdled, it's gone bad. 
And it's translated here complacency. And, and why is it translated that way? Because, because these people are settled in their unbelief. Those who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good nor will he do ill. They say this in their hearts. That Yahweh, the living and true God, he won't do good or ill, they're saying. So in other words, even these ancient residents of Judah who lived in the holy city, who, who were within distance of the, of the temple of God, they were essentially secularists. Their worldview was, oh, the Lord basically really isn't even involved. He doesn't care. And when they do that, when they say God's not going to do good, in other words, they weren't expecting any big help from God, and God's not going to do ill, they didn't expect him to judge them or, or do anything harmful or particularly uh, threatening. When they make statements like that, and when they believed those kinds of things in their hearts, they were essentially comparing the true and living God to an idol. Because in the scriptures, when God mocks the idols of the nations, he speaks of them in exactly those terms. And so, for instance, in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 5, the word of the Lord through Jeremiah said that idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. See that? They can't do evil, can't do good. Can't do anything. They're idols. Or when God is mocking the idols of the world in Isaiah 41, verse 23, he speaks to the false gods of the nations. He taunts them and he says, Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be terrified and dismayed, knowing that they can't do either. But when God's own people say, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill, what are they saying? But that Jehovah is no different than an idol. Well, God goes on to say that the pursuits of these people, verse 13, their pursuits, their works, their investments are all going to be made fruitless. Their goods shall be plundered, the text says, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. And you know, that's just simply a fulfillment of the very covenant curses that are found in the books of Moses. Those are the exact things God said would befall his people if they break covenant and were not faithful to him. And I think here we have, especially in those complacent ones, a portrait of modern man. The complacent in Judah are fearfully reminiscent of millions of Americans today. 
Lots of Americans have this vague general notion of God. And yes, there's a God. They believe in Him, or they say they do. But they don't think He has anything to do with them. Nor they with Him. He may exist, but he doesn't really do anything. He has no relevance to daily life. Isn't that the view of people you know? These people may even go to church, but they only do it because it's the proper thing to do or it's a social activity for them or their parents did or it's in fashion, if it is anymore. God's punishment is coming upon such people. The complacency of fools destroys them, Proverbs 1.32 says. God has a bead on all the false securities of men. He's drawn a bullseye on all of men's idols. He surely will do ill to everyone who has turned away from Him. The day of the Lord is near. Well, that's how it pertains to the house of God to the people of Judah, to the covenant people who had broken covenant and turned away from God, and even the, the very citizens of Jerusalem. Well, what about the rest of the people? What about the nations? Well, again, I think in, starting in verse 14, the scope of God's lens with which He examines the nations and finds them wanting and pronounces judgment on them, it expands out to all the rest of the world. Part of the reason I think we see that this is a, a new thought and the, the, the emphasis and the, and the focus is becoming more expansive is because uh, verse 7 spoke of the day of the Lord. Verse 14 adds the word great, the great day of the Lord. And we've mentioned in the past that there isn't necessarily just one day of the Lord in prophetic terms. Sometimes different down payments or installments that God makes on judgment upon any people, His own people or the nations, those are, those are sort of um, tremors that are going to precede the great day of the Lord. And they can properly be called the day of the Lord. And certain specific events that have already passed... Events that are recorded in Scripture are sometimes called or referred to as the day of the Lord. But here in verse 14, I think our eyes are lifted to that final day, that great day of judgment, the great day of the Lord, the global day of the Lord. And you have another warning then in verse 14 that it's drawing near. And there's an added warning. It's drawing near and hastening fast. I'm not sure if that's the best grammar, but that's what it says. It's coming, and it's coming quickly, this fearsome day. It reminds me of this preview I saw numerous times on television of, of a lion charging, and it's a pretty frightening scene. I mean, maybe you've seen on, uh, on wildlife programming uh, pictures of lions attacking uh, herds of, of animals or attacking an animal that strayed from a herd. But in this particular preview I'm remembering, there wasn't any special uh, prey in sight. And, and the, from the perspective of the camera, the, the lion was charging towards you as you watched this preview. 
you really got the sense that it was coming right for you. And this beast that weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds is powerful and deadly, is racing across the, the tundra, across the, the plain there. And uh, it was fearful. Because you know, you're used to seeing lions strut, but not necessarily charge. And this is a frightening thing to see. And I think what that teaches us, one quick point of application, when the scriptures say the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast, we must not see judgment as something that's looming way off in the distance. We mustn't see the judgment of God or the day of the Lord as something that's far off. It's coming. It's coming quickly. That's also depicted at the end of our text. If you look at verse 18, where God speaks of making a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus described it as being like a thief in the night. Comes with no warning. This great day of the Lord has a sound And it's a bitter sound, the text says. Like a mighty man crying aloud. There's a little bit of disagreement about what that means, whether it's supposed to be this mighty warrior whose task it is to defend a city or to, to, in some capacity or other, fight. And he's reduced to crying out because the day is so terrible. Or the... uh, The cry of the mighty man might be God's own battle cry. Either way, the cry is bitter. And to the ears of the world, it'll be a frightening thing. The day of the Lord has a sound. It also has characteristics. And they're described verse after verse, line after line there, uh, as a day of distress, a day of anguish, a day of ruin, devastation, Darkness, gloom. Darkness is mentioned a second time. Thick darkness, it says. No bright side here for the enemies of God. Not even for the most optimistic. And the outcome of the day is death. Verse 17, the second half of the verse, their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. The proliferation of blood. Spoken in terms of, spoken of in terms of filthiness, vileness. And there's no escaping this day. Look with me at the beginning of verse 18 again. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. People put confidence in many things. They put their trust in all sorts of things, including other people. But one of the most, uh, one of mankind's most stubborn and persistent idols is wealth. Just money. Because the attitude of carnal man is, and always has been, you know, with enough money, 
I could get out of any predicament. If I have enough money, I can build a safer, stronger house. I can build a higher, more powerful wall. I can purchase more guns. I can get a better security system. I can get a remedy for whatever ailment I may contract. All I need is enough money to do it. Here and countless other places, Scripture teaches us that all the money in the world can't deliver from the wrath of God. If you today could find in your bank account the combined net worth of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Bill Gates, if it was right there in your bank account tonight, it would be useless to protect you on the day of wrath. You could have all the money of Mark Zuckerberg and Michael Bloomberg. It won't do you any good. It won't help you. Is it any wonder then that the Apostle Peter calls the blood of Jesus precious? What all the wealth in the world could never do, Christ's blood can do. second half of that last verse, the conclusion of this chapter. Nothing on earth can protect you from the day of the Lord. No no power on earth, no power in the spiritual realm can shield you from the wrath of God. And it's spoken of as comprehensive. All the earth shall be consumed. He will make all the inhabitants of the earth. He'll make a a full end of them. And so, One commentator wrote, Like a just judge committed to doing what is right, Yahweh's consuming passion for the honor of his name will soon burst forth in unquenchable fires of wrath against the ungodly of the earth. That's what's coming. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. It's coming against his rebellious people and against all the inhabitants of the earth. So, my admonition to you and the way we can apply this passage tonight is to let these solemn warnings move us to revere and worship the true and living God. That same commentator I just quoted, DeRoshi, makes this observation. How dreadful to have the source of all power and the upholder of all life working against you Do you see what folly it is to reject the Lord, to ignore Him, to presume to reduce Him to a mere idol who has no relevance to your life? That's why Jesus said, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with Him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and so on and so forth. See, brothers and sisters, our journey through this life is just a step-by-step trip to the judge. A step-by-step trip, day-by-day, to court, wherein we will stand before the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus in the gospel is saying, make peace with God now while you can. So if you've not yet turned from your sins... Anyone here in this room, anyone watching the live stream, anyone who 
Here's this recording. Anyone within the sound of my voice, if you have not yet turned from your sins and received and rested on Christ for salvation, do it now. Do it tonight. Do not delay. This may be the last warning you ever hear. You don't know. But God isn't asking you to repent. He's commanding you to repent. And what a gracious and kind God He is that He would command you to do the one and only thing that can save you from the day of His wrath. And a word of application for those of you who have repented and received and rested upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be in awe of the day of the Lord which is coming. We should be in awe of it but we need not be afraid of it. It will be a day of wrath. There's no doubt about it. It'll be a day of wrath. It'll be a day of all the things described here. Distress, darkness, because God is coming to judge the sins of the world. He'll come to judge all the sins of all mankind. In His righteous indignation, He will make a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth, just as it says in our text. But as for you who have fled to Jesus for refuge. There will be no more wrath for you. There will be no wrath, not even a drop of it for you if you're trusting in Him. Why? Because all the distress and all the anguish and all the wrath and ruin that your sins deserve have already been suffered by Jesus in your behalf. That's what He was doing on the cross. You remember what we saw in Verse 7, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. My dear brothers and sisters, from before the foundation of the earth, the Lord had prepared a sacrifice for you. A sacrifice to die as your substitute. His name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The blood of bulls and goats can't do that but His can. And He asked us to remember His death by observing an ordinance. We call it the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that together now. So, as we do, let's let's pray. Father, how kind You are to warn us that Your wrath is coming. How kind You are to warn the nations of the world that Your day is coming. And that although it will be a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of wrath, Lord, you provide an escape for us in Jesus Christ. And how we thank you for that. So as we come to the table now, uh, please be with us and bless the observance of this ordinance. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'll ask the elders to come forward now.